0: In verses 1 to 3, they read like this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It really couldn't be any worse than what's expressed in those three verses, which is a condensed version of Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. But, after two weeks there, we now get to move into the good news, which is contained in verses 4 to 7. It's the solution to the problem of sin and death. It's salvation and life. It reads like this. But God... So that's the good news, uh, the solution to the problem. And as I was thinking through that and meditating on it, trying to uh, understand better all this contained in that good news, the but God, it struck me that this is extremely similar to exactly what we were doing when we were in Isaiah, which is the book we did before Ephesians. We took a short break for Lent, kind of uh, focusing on the crucifixion of Christ before Resurrection Sunday. That was a... I think a five-week break, maybe six-week break. But right before Ephesians, we did Isaiah. And it struck me how incredibly the same Ephesians is with Isaiah, which on one level shouldn't be surprising at all because it's the same Holy Spirit of God that inspired Isaiah to write what he did, that inspired Paul to write what he did. And it's also true that even though Isaiah was written like 700 years before Jesus came, Paul's writing Ephesians roughly 50 years after Jesus uh, was born. So seven, there's a 750-year difference between Isaiah and Ephesians. Isaiah's problem in his day was sin, sin and death, just like for Paul. And the solution in Isaiah's day had to be God doing something, just like for Paul. And now here we are in, 20, in the 21st century, in 2022, the problem is still sin and death. And the solution is still something only God can do. It's never changed. So I'm gonna I want us to think back for just a moment, and I'm not gonna take a long time, but I, I want to think back to Isaiah for just a moment, and this this will maybe ring a bell if you were here. It looks something like this. And this is a slide I didn't have to come up with. This is what a slide I, I did when we did Isaiah. So I didn't come up with this slide so to show you. Oh, look, it's Ephesians. This is what we did in Isaiah. Now that I'm in Ephesians, I recognize the close connection between the two. So, constantly repeated themes in Isaiah looked like this. Sin, judgment, salvation, encouragement for the remnant. They weren't seeing the fullness of all that God had promised to do, but it's encouragement for the remnant according to grace. And then there was this dramatic uh, theme, and each one of those was a theme. Entire Sections of Scripture or chapters were devoted to each one of those themes. The last theme on this list—they're in—they're uh, in somewhat of an order, but no particular order because they kept getting repeated through isaiah the last theme was renewal and reversal and isaiah would picture jerusalem as abandoned forlorn like a widow deprived of her children and then he'd picture jerusalem as as receiving all the blessing and the fullness that god had ever promised jerusalem and having more children than she could possibly imagine more children that would fit in in her within her walls and they would have to enlarge the boundaries to fit all of these children ...into this Jerusalem. This great theme of reversal and renewal. Well, it's not hard to see that these are all themes in Ephesians. We haven't actually hit all of those themes uh, entirely yet... ...because we're only in beginning chapter 2. But we certainly are seeing this theme of sin... ...and this theme of salvation. The reversal is also the, the... ...but God is going to reverse a situation from death... life. That's the ultimate reversal, spiritual death to spiritual life. But you've got those themes of sin and salvation in both books. So let me rehearse for you a couple verses from Isaiah emphasizing the sin problem that is unsolvable so far as Israel is concerned. Isaiah writes this in chapter 64. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we've been a long time and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Isaiah puts himself in that camp. Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips in chapter 6, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah is a sinner just like the rest, though he kind of stands as a type of Christ, one who is mediating on behalf of the people. But in Isaiah's case, he, he's a sinner himself. He's going to point to a greater intercessor, a greater mediator, a greater person who stands in to solve the sin problem. But Isaiah cries out, what are we going to do? This situation hasn't changed no matter what God has done. He can flood the world and start over with eight people. And you still have the sin problem. He can make explicit his commandments. All you've got to do is obey these things. We still have the sin problem. He can isolate a group of people, separate them from all the nations of the earth. They still have a sin problem. He can send judges. He can send kings. He can give them sacrifices. He can send them prophets. The sin problem doesn't go away. Isaiah recognizes that. He says, What are we going to do? How can we be saved? How can God, with all of these lofty promises, how could they ever come to fruition? He also says, There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. This is an unsolvable problem, just like in Ephesians chapter 2. And then I read, Isaiah says, But now, O Lord... You are our father, we are the clay, you are our potter, we are all the work of your hand. That but now, O Lord, is kind of Isaiah's equivalent to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, but God. Isaiah's praying, uh, Isaiah is praying what Paul recognizes but God. Isaiah says, But now, O Lord, you're our Father. And so here's the Father's words in Isaiah emphasizing the salvation and the grace that comes by way of God. He, speaking of the Lord, saw that there was no man who would solve the problem, who would bridge the gap. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. It was the Lord's own arm that solved the sin problem because there's no man on earth that could do it. No nation, no people group, no collection of individuals, not the best of the best. No one's going to solve the problem except the Lord solves the problem himself and his righteousness is not compromised in the least in solving that problem. Why does the Lord do this? Why does he intervene? There's different answers to this. They emphasize different things. In Isaiah's case, the answer to the question, why does the Lord intervene? Why does he not just leave them in their sin? He gave them every opportunity to get it right. He doesn't leave them in their sin because of his own namesake. He tells you over and over in the Old Testament, it's for my own namesake. I made a promise. I made an oath. I, I crafted a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they were going to be my chosen people, a treasured possession belonging to me. God made a promise with David regarding his kingly line. God made promises to Jerusalem. So why does the Lord intervene? Because of his own namesake, because of his own word, because of his own promises? Not because of them, because of him. Well, if we answer this question, why does the Lord intervene? In Paul's case, as he's talking, writing to these Gentile churches, he gives us four four basic reasons why he intervenes. They're centered around this idea of, why did I intervene? Here's why. Because of, here's why, and so that I might show. So there are four reasons why the Lord intervenes on behalf of these Gentiles. He didn't make promises to them like he did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He didn't say out of, you know... It's not just one nation out of all the nations, but all the nations will be my treasured possession. They'll all be a special people. No, it was, it was Israel. But Gentiles are somehow brought into this salvation, this, this wonderful covenant of grace. Why? The four reasons are this. Because of my great love, and I'm rich in mercy. So it's because of his mercy and his love, so that I might show my grace and my kindness, those four reasons: mercy, love, grace, and kindness. the center of it all is the because of the great love so we 're going to start with that one briefly, uh, because of the great love that 's why I intervened because of my great love john three sixteen god 's great love, so love the world that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It is a love that doesn 't see inerrant value in the sinner, but He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He didn't see, oh, but I know, I know down deep inside you—you've got the spark of goodness. You've got that you want to do the right thing. You're seeking after Me uh, in a in a way that I reckon. No, we're dead. But because of His great love with which He loved us, that's why I intervened. So. Romans 5 tells us God shows his love. Same word, the agape love. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. Our condition hadn't changed when God sent his son. Our condition hadn't changed when Christ died on the cross to take away sin. God shows his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the, that's the central reason in these verses why there's an intervention. Because God loves Secondly, God says he's rich in mercy, rich in pity. You've probably heard somewhere along the line, mercy has, is this concept of you're not getting what you rightly deserve. So it's a withholding the wrath of God, withholding the just desert you have coming to you. God withholds that. He, he pities his own. He pities his children. The same word is used in Titus chapter 3. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration, regeneration, making alive, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. What Paul writes to Titus is very similar to what Paul's writing to the Ephesians. He saved us, he regenerates, he quickens, he gives life. It has to do with his initiative, his grace, his Holy Spirit, and it's a game changer. So, the first two reasons, mercy and love. The second two reasons, so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Grace being, we get what, not only do we not receive what we ought to deserve, that's withheld, but in fact, we receive what we don't deserve, the riches of his grace. This unmerited favor. And last week, I ended with a, An audio excerpt from Tim Keller where we learned grace, by its very definition, all becauses are eliminated in us. It doesn't mean there's no because, because God's grace is because God is a loving God. But it's not God's grace because I did something. The moment I said I had a because and it has something to do with me, we're not talking about grace. Because then it's, well, I did something, I need paid off. If I do the right, re- if I work a certain amount of hours and there's an agreement in place, I expect to be paid. If I, uh, whatever you devote yourself to, you do something and you expect a certain return. In this case, God's grace that saves has there's no because answered by us. It's because God is loving is why He saves by grace. It's entirely found in Him. That was uh, Keller's sermon last week. The entire sermon's a terrific message. Uh, I'd be happy to give you the link to it if you're interested. And then lastly, so that he might show not only his grace, but his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That word "kindness" uh, oftentimes translated "kindness," It's also translated "goodness" a lot. He is a kind and good God. His kindness is bathed in His goodness. As God is kind, God is good. To all those he saves by his grace. It's used twice in Romans chapter 2, where Paul says, Or do you have contempt for the wealth of his kindness? Which Paul talks a lot about the riches of his grace and then the riches of his kindness in Ephesians 2. But, or do you have contempt for the wealth of his kindness, forbearance and patience, and yet do not know that God's kindness leads you to repentance? Why is it God has, has not judged the world in perfect righteousness and all the wrath that has been stored up uh, by God because of man's sin, his no one is righteous, no not one, no, see, no one seeks after God. You know, the wages of sin is death. Why hasn't that fallen? It's, it's at least rooted in this general benevolence and kindness of God where it leads some to Repentance where God is still by his grace saving sinners, bringing them to salvation in Christ. And that kindness is is a forestalling of inevitable judgment, which also will fall. But it's easy for, Ecclesiastes makes the point, sinners think because justice is delayed that there is no justice. Sinners think because justice is delayed that I got away with it you know, everybody's done something where you did something you shouldn't have done and you're like, oh, I wonder if I got caught or I wonder if somebody heard what I just said or saw what I just did and there's this moment of panic and then like, oh, I don't think anybody caught it. And you've got this sense of relief. All right? In a sense, that's the world in sin. They're like, They've all done something wrong. We've all done something wrong. And there's this sense that I don't think there's justice. I don't think there is a God. Why, if, if God was good and He's all powerful, why would there be all these crimes and atrocities done in the world? I don't think there is a God. But in fact, that kindness is what leads some to repentance, all those who put their faith in Christ. Find there, we're saved by His grace. So what did God do? We know why He did it. He did it. The reasons why are his love, his mercy, his grace and his kindness. That's what prompted him to do something. What did he in fact do? What he in fact did in Ephesians chapter 2 is he made us alive together with Christ. Well, that solves the death problem because I was dead in trespasses and sins. So, what God did is he made me alive together with Christ. What God did is he raised me up with him. And what God did is he seated me. He seated all those who's saved by grace. He raised, He made us alive, raised us up, and seated us with Christ. It all has to do with a connection with Christ. It's all accomplished because of Christ. It's all, it's all a done deal because of the connection, the identification between who I am and who Christ is. Because now my life, my destiny, my purpose for living is all wrapped up in who he is and what happened to Christ, the connection between the two. Those three verbs, made alive, raised up, seated us with. So what should we know about what God did? We know why he did it. We know what he did. What should we know in relation to ourselves? That's what he did. So what should I know? What's the big takeaway? Um, I'm not good at, uh, and it's probably because I've not been to proper like Bible schools and seminaries where you're supposed to have like this one main point, this big takeaway. If it, even if everybody else forgets everything else, you keep coming back to this main takeaway. Like I imagine, and I'm sure, because I know I've heard it from time to time, you can walk away from a message and you're like, I'm not even sure what I heard. Like I'm not sure how many takeaways there were. I mean, there was that was a that was a mouthful. Well, here's a big takeaway. Here's here's an easy. What should I know based upon all that God has done and why he did it? What should I know about what God did? Here it is. You have been saved. It is accomplished. That's what you should know. You have been saved. Not you're going to be saved. Not one day, someday. You have been saved because your destiny is wrapped up in Christ. You have been made alive. Not waiting to be made alive. You are spiritually alive in Christ. You have been raised up right now with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. It's all accomplished. There's nothing in jeopardy because it's tied up with who Christ is. Has Christ been raised from the dead? Yes, he has. Has he been been raised up to the right hand of the Father and seated at the Father's throne? Yes, he has. That's where my destiny is. That's me. That's my position. There's a difference in the Bible. Theologians would talk about this depending on who you're reading. Uh, There's a difference between your position in Christ and your experience. Okay? Positionally, I am justified. I am blameless. I am sanctified and I'm glorified. It's all done. Positionally. That's how God looks at me. But in my everyday life, I know that... Doesn't look to be the case, because I still say things I shouldn't say. I'm still driven by selfish motives. There's times I'm still walking in step with the world. I still sin and transgress, so my experience doesn't always match my position. But Paul says right now, I want you to know your position. I know what is settled. I'm letting you know what has been settled. It's certain and sure, because it's tied to Christ, not tied to you. Uh, D- Don Carson says regarding this whole concept. When Paul, when Paul says, uh, you have been saved, he's, in a sense, he's not saying your salvation is completed. It's still a work in progress, in a sense. He's not saying it's completed, but it's completely taken care of. It's completely taken care of. And And in your experience, your experience will more closely... Match what God knows to be true. Because His Spirit is at work among His people, in each one of His individuals. He is making us like His Son. It's completely taken care of. It won't be completed in in our experience until the body is raised in newness of life. That is, literally, physically, a glorified body, like Jesus rose from the grave. It will be incapable, our bodies will be incapable of sinning our bodies will be incapable of experiencing sin and death and disease because it will be a new body. It will be a completely changed body. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 15. So that's what we should know about what God did. Salvation is more than forgiveness. Uh, A cross-reference, which we don't have time for, would be Colossians, kind of expands upon these themes. But here's, here's what I want you to get from salvation is more than forgiveness. If you're a Christian... And you say my sins are forgiven. That is a true statement. But being a Christian means more than your your sins are forgiven. The word salvation, I mean a close verb, a synonym, doesn't mean uh, I'm saved. That is the equivalent of forgiven sins. Saved means delivered. Delivered. If you're saved, if I say I'm saved, I'm saying I'm delivered from something. What am I delivered from? Death. Death. I'm delivered from the penalty of sin, which is death. I'm delivered from the power of sin. I'm learning that. One day I will be delivered from the presence of sin. It's delivered. So there's somebody, if all they do is equate salvation with forgiveness, they're like, oh, I'm forgiven because I said a sinner's prayer. Or I'm forgiven because I got baptized in a tank. Or I'm forgiven because fill in the blank. And there's no deliverance? Then they did some religious things. But it's not God's salvation, because God's salvation delivers from sin. And we become more worshipful of God who's revealed himself in scripture, which goes back to A.W. Tozer. So salvation is forgiveness. It includes that, but it's more than that. It's deliverance. What should we recognize about God? So my takeaway is, I have been saved. What should I recognize about God based upon all that we're looking at in verses 4 to 7? When we did a Vacation Bible School a couple weeks ago, and I can't remember if I already told you this, so I'll try to keep it short. But in Vacation Bible School, as we were talking about God, uh, one God in three persons, we talked about how God chooses to reveal himself. How does God make himself known? We talked about the God of creation. You can read about that, well, obviously in Genesis 1. But you can read about the God of creation in Romans chapter 1, where it says, you look at creation, and everyone in creation can see something about from creation. You know what? God has power. God has incredible knowledge and wisdom. All the design and the the power exhibited in his creation. Those attributes of, of God are plainly known by creation. You can, get, you can expand on that. We talked about that in VBS. You know, God is... A, he, he demonstrates great creativity. He demonstrates uh, benevolence and that everything's in perfect balance. It works so well together. Everything seems just in the right place. I mean, we're not burnt up. We're not freezing to death. Uh, you might be cold or chilly, but you're not freezing to death. All this we know about God from creation, but that's not enough. God also reveals himself in conscience. And revealing himself in conscience, what's unique about that is he's revealing something about his righteousness and his holy character. That he is a God that determines right from wrong. And he's given you a sense of that. I mean, I haven't really fleshed this out. Uh, the theory I've operated on for decades is that the fact that we have a conscience is, is in a resu- it's the result of sin. Because Adam ate. Trespassed by eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of knowledge of good and evil. That's conscience. Prior to disobeying God, he just trusted what God said was good and evil. He didn't have any internal sense what was good or right. He didn't need it. He trusted God said this was this is right, this is wrong. He trusted God. But when he disobeyed, he received a conscience. Where now he knew what he did was wrong. He couldn't solve the problem. But now, all by himself, within his conscience, he knew right from wrong. He had a sense of right from wrong. I'm kind of toying with doing the early chapters of Genesis when we're done with Ephesians. Uh, Who knows? Anything could change by then. But in conscience, we we learn something about God not revealed in creation. We learn something more of his righteousness, his holiness, his, his separateness from all that is impure and evil and sinful. But what do we learn about God or recognize about God in Ephesians that we don't recognize by creation and we don't recognize in our conscience? And what we recognize is that God's love is revealed in his Son. In a way that creation and conscience cannot reveal that, there's no greater way for God to reveal how great his love is than, and his mercy and his grace and his kindness than what he has done in his Son. Again, John 3.16, uh, Romans 5.8, 5, Romans 5.12, other pa- places in Scripture. God reveals most explicitly how great is His love? Look at the Son. Look at the Son. And this is imagery in Scripture where if in all the ways you imagine God, love is not one of those ways without compromising righteousness... But if love is not one of the ways that seems central to you as to God's character, you're missing a big message of Scripture. And uh, Charles Spurgeon is so good at preaching this, where he preaches the holiness and the righteousness of God and the grace of God. But he also preaches the love of God. And so you've got many, many examples in Scripture. One would be a a story Jesus told, the parable of... uh, Of the prodigal son, there were two sons, or the prodigal father, and that the lavish father. But you've got, Jesus is using an image, teaching us something about the great, compassionate love of God for his own. Because those two sons represent Israel. There's the tax collector and the sinner, the wayward son of Israel. And then there's the older brother, the pharisaical, self-righteous Israelite. But those are God's sons. And Jesus tells this parable about the father running to meet his son who's coming back in repentance and embracing him and welcoming him as a son and not as a servant, not as a slave. That's the compassionate love of God for his own. That's in the prodigal son. There's so many more examples. Uh, In Luke, you've got two two explicit examples and then uh, Jesus' call. In Matthew, about coming to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's a compassionate, loving call. In Luke chapter 13, it's where Jesus uh, says to Jerusalem, he's mourning over Jerusalem, how often I would have longed to gather you, but you would not. You didn't come to me. In spite of God's great love for Israel, for Jerusalem, for his people. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus is entering Jerusalem for the last time. And as he looks out over the city, he weeps. Those are his people. John's gospel says he came unto his own and his own received him not. The promised Messiah, the one foretold by the prophets. The one who the kings bore image to in their kingly reign. The one whom the priests offered these imperfect sacrifices pointing to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He came unto his own and his own received him not. And Jesus looks out over Jerusalem and he weeps in love because those are his people. Because those are his people. Isaiah gives us the promise. The last chapter hasn't been written yet because he's going to redeem his people. He will save his people by his grace. So, the last example is is a peculiar example because it's one I never would have thought of, but I like the passion of of the example of uh, what God does when in his grace, he's bringing his sheep into the flock. Alexander McLaren likens this passage, he uses this example. Thus, the great truth that is taught us here, first of all, is that that divine love of the divine father bends down over his dead children and cherishes them still. Oh, you can do much in separating yourselves from God through selfishness, self-will, sensuality, or other forms of sin, but there's, there is one thing you cannot do. You cannot prevent his loving you. If I might venture without seeming irreverent, I would point to that, pathetic page in the Old Testament history where the king hears of the death, red-handed, red-handed in treason of his darling son, careless of victory and forgetful of everything else and oblivious that Absalom was a rebel and only remembering that he was his boy, burst into that monotonous wail that has come down over all the centuries as the deepest expression of undying fatherly love. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. That's in scripture. The name and the relationship will well up out of the father's heart, whatever the child's name. We are his Absaloms, saved by grace. And though we are dead in trespasses and in sins, God, who is rich in mercy, bends over us and loves us with his great love. Have you ever thought of yourself as an Absalom? What a great word picture. Because I like to think of myself as not as Absalom, as somebody just a little bit cleaner, somebody not so low as to betray my king. But that's who I am. I'm Absalom. And God, in his love, by his grace, brought me to the cross. And I repented and believed. And I was made new. And my life has never been the same. And lots lots of events in life, they come and they go. Things, various events, things in life seem so important at the time, but eventually they wane. But the one constant in my life is my relationship with Christ. It hasn't changed. It is it is more important now than it was when I was younger. It's not something that gets you through difficult teenage years and then it's done. It's not something that uh, you can set aside while you're on your career path and then you better make sure to get it back out of the closet when you're ready to retire. My relationship with Christ is, has got to be at the center of everything I do because there's nothing more important. It is the treasure and the, the treasure in a field, the pearl of great price. I was Absalom and God brought me to himself. Finally, according to our text, the church exhibits perpetually, not just for a time, but not only, And not only in this age, but for all ages, the church exhibits in the coming ages the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The church will be an eternal, perpetual testimony of how loving God really is, how gracious God really is, how kind God really is. The church will declare that and sing that forever. Because it will always define who we are as the people of God. We will never arrive at a point where we are something outside of Christ. We exist because of Christ. We are only and entirely his. Has God a show off? It says in the coming ages he might show. Like in kindergarten we did show and tell. You brought something to show and tell and you showed it. And, and, you know, if somebody brought something really cool and you were like next up and yours was like, you know, you thought about it the last moment, it really wasn't impressive. God's showing something. Is God a show off? And the answer to the question is yes, he is. God is the ultimate show off. God can show off things that nobody could possibly imagine. Paul's going to talk about that in the Ephesians. You can't even comprehend what God has done. And there are so many other examples of God being a show off. In Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26, it says he is showing his righteousness. So he does show his love. He does show his grace. He does show his kindness. But he also shows his righteousness in Christ. And it's not by law we attain righteousness. It's by faith in Christ. So God shows off his righteousness. In uh, Romans chapter 9, he shows off his power in Pharaoh. He shows, how much power do I have? I'll show you how much power I have. I'm going to raise up Pharaoh, and his heart will be so set against me, I'll show you how much power I have in delivering my people out of slavery in Egypt and swallowing up Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. That's my power. God shows off in in, uh, 1 Timothy 1, verse verse 16. Paul says, he's showing off, and I should remember this exactly, but I don't, so I'm going to see in my notes what he's showing off to get it right. Paul says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display, might show his perfect patience. As an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. God is showing off his patience when he saved Paul. You could put your name in there. God is showing off. How patient is He? He was patient enough. He called, He mourned over me and by His grace made me alive in Christ. That's how patient He is. What a beautiful story of redemption. What are your comments and questions? Lori. Uh, The first one is penalty. And isn't that nice? They're all Ps. So you've got penalties first, power second, presence third. So penalty has to do with justification. The power of sin has to do with sanctification. The presence of sin has to do with glorification. So when we are inexperienced, entirely glorified, even the presence of sin will be removed. So penalty, power, and presence. Would that all of life was an alliteration. Anybody else have a thought or comment? Question? Delia. I heard a sermon on it. It's just a, whenever I see that verse, what, what the pastor said is these trophies. Yeah. Trophies of grace. I mean, I I, used, I remember talking with a, uh, a young gal. Well, actually, yeah. Uh, in the Old Testament, God calls his people... Peculiar treasures, right? Peculiar treasures. I remember Sarah and I, we talked about that as well. But we're God's peculiar. I think it's the old King James that uses that. We are God's peculiar treasures. What a a line, you know. It's unfortunate. I'm sure newer translations don't call us peculiar treasures. But let's be honest, you're pretty peculiar. (laughs) And so am I. We're peculiar treasures of God's grace. Because we were Absalom's treasonously set against God. Somebody else? Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer. God our Father, I thank you for all that you've done in Christ. I thank you that it's so done in Christ that this doesn't depend on my performance. My performance changes. My life changes. My motivations change. My thoughts, my actions, my deeds, they're not perfect. But my salvation, my standing before you depends on Christ. And so that's why we sing those songs. That's why we sing all hail the power of Jesus' name. That's why we sing uh, crown him with many crowns. That's why we sing songs of...